Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. If we don't have any special things that stuck out to us, Acts chapter 5, we're tonight looking at both the famous and the infamous from Scripture. We are looking at different characters, both men and women. Tonight we're going to look at a couple, that of being Ananias and Sapphira. Um, Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at Aquila and Priscilla out of Acts 18. So if you want to think about them for next week. Um, So what we've been doing with all of these, um, we've been looking at both Old Testament and New Testament. We've been looking at who... Um, who they were, why do we know them, what lessons do they teach us. And so the goal is is to understand why these characters, why these people are in Scripture. God gives us His Word for both instruction. He gives us His Word for correction. He gives us His Word for training. He gives us His Word so that we might structure our lives under the authority of God's Word. But He also gives us men and women, boys and girls in the Bible as a model, as an example of how God dealt with them, how they dealt with God. And so when you and I find ourselves in our daily course of life and we start to be um, thinking, we start to think to ourselves, no one's ever been in my shoes before. Well, that's fooey. There's always someone you can look in Scripture as being a, as an example and a model of how you should live. So, Acts chapter 5, we're going to look at the couple. Um, I think up to this point, we've always just looked at singles, um, both men and women. Um, but tonight, we're going to look at a couple. They are really seen in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is kind of where the highlight for them is at. So, we ask the same three questions. Um, Who were they? So biographical, just factual information about them. Why do we know them? Like, why are they recorded in Scripture? And then what lessons do they teach us? So, Acts chapter 5, what do we know about Ananias and Sapphira? Who were they? Not why do we know them, just give me some biographical information. Where did they live? Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem, okay. They lived in Jerusalem. Do we know kind of a time period of when they lived? So we're right there at the early church. So Christ had ascended. You'd gone 50 days after the ascension, and that's when you had Pentecost. That's Acts chapter 2. It doesn't necessarily give us a... You know, March 1st, June 2nd, August the 10th. So we know that we are after the ascension of Christ. But we also know that based upon Paul's writings that he doesn't, he has not come on the scene yet. And he hasn't really been there. So we're going to be in that first generation of believers. Does that make sense? So it really doesn't tell us whether we are in 30 AD or whether we're in 40 AD, but we have a really good note. We have a really good basis to say we're in the first generation of believers. So we're in Jerusalem, kind of the first gen. Is that right, Mr. Gillentine? The first gen Christians, right? Can I say first gen? Okay. So first gen Christians, uh, 
What else do we know about them? Would they be Jews? They would be Jews. Okay, they'd be Jews. So let's just let's just take Ananias by himself. What do we know about Ananias? Is he elsewhere in Scripture? Do we find him elsewhere in Scripture? Is it a different Ananias? There is. Yeah. There is. Like, where else would you like? Is there something you're thinking about? Like, maybe where else you might know the name Ananias? Samuel. No. Whisper. Acts. It is Acts. Acts chapter nine. <laughs> Is that what he said? Okay, I just I, I thought that's I, I just didn't know. My hearing is sometimes a little a little wonky. <laughs> so when you think about Ananias and Survivors, and sometimes people will look and just try to find out who they were, they'll just look at the name Ananias. And so they'll go in their Bible, wherever they see the word Ananias, they just assume that's the same person. Well, that can be a pitfall if that is how you go about it. Because you get to Acts chapter 9 and you have Saul, who's on the Damascus Road, and he gets called out by Jesus. Remember, he gets knocked to the ground. He sees the bright light. Lord Jesus from heaven tells him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, then he gets up. He's led by the hand into Damascus. And as he is in Damascus, he is there for how many days? Three. Three, okay. And then at the end of, at, during that time, he is blind. He cannot see. And then God comes and speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. Ananias and says, go to Straight Street and there you will find Saul and re- help him or put your hands on him so that he might restore his sight because he is a, a instrument useful for me. And at that time, Ananias is like, um, I think you have the wrong person, God. You see, this guy was coming to Damascus to arrest me and haul me to jail with the rest of my first gen believers. So I don't think it would be the great idea to give him sight because then what's he going to do to me? And that's when God tells Ananias, hey, you know what? I got it. Just go do what you're told. You ever do that with teenagers? You ever heard that, Mr. Devin? Don't worry about it. Just do what I tell you to do. Maybe maybe that's just in my house. But it's sometimes you just look at them and you're just like, hey, I don't need you to question. I just need you to be obedient. All right? So you get an example right there of Ananias. Well, if you're just looking for the name, you may think, same dude. Not same person. Do you know the what the name means? Well, so... I can, I've got several different sources that will tell me what the name means. I'm just always, me, I'm just sometimes skeptical and a little cynical. Like where do they, where is the book that says this is the official meaning of all the names? So I'm just, like I've said before, you know, I can go into different truck stops. And Charles means one thing in one truck stop on one pocket knife or one picture. And you go to the next truck stop and Charles means something else on a shot glass or keychain. I'm just, I'm cynical. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying I'm, I'm, I'm always questioning. So I don't, so I don't know. I didn't, I didn't look at it, Mr. Harold. All right, so we have Ananias there in Acts chapter 5. And then we got another Ananias in Acts chapter 9. Anybody know of another Ananias? Acts 23, that's right. So, Ananias in that sense is who? What's his title? Anybody know? He's the high priest. 
That's right. So you have Ananias, who is the high priest during that season and during that time, which Paul then stands before as he is being accused of insurrection and as he's being accused of heresy and as he's being accused of um, dissension. All these things, he stands before Ananias to give a defense for himself. So again, if you're doing just a name search and you're looking and going, hey, this must be the same Ananias different person. It'd be just like looking at Joe Smith. Um, just because you see Joe Smith and Wellston and you see another Joe Smith and Luther doesn't mean they're the same Joe Smith. So you just want to be careful about that when you think about Ananias. So um, you have him, you have a Ananias in Acts 9, you got a Ananias in Acts 23. So when we think about who this Ananias is, different person, just same name. Anything else we might know about him? He's married. Who's he married to? Sapphira. Sapphira. Alright, so we then could infer that she is married to him. <laughs> probably. Probably. Okay. She probably lives in Jerusalem since he lives in Jerusalem. Do we know anything about either one of those? I couldn't find anything else. Um, sometimes you're like, well, he must have found something. I, no, I mean, I, I use the same Bible you have. So um, I can make some stuff up. But really what we're seeing in Scripture, that's all really that we know. So some people, that may lead them to go, well, why? Why is that all we know about them? And the just simple answer is because that's all God thought you needed to know about them. That, that's enough. That, that, that's sufficient. Because the, the point of this passage is not about where they grew up. The point about this passage is not who their parents were. The point of this passage is not about any children they may or may not have had. The point of this passage is, is what did they do to God and then what did God do to them. That's the whole point of the passage. So please don't go to seed on trying to look for factual information if he doesn't give it. And then miss the spiritual purpose for why the story is there. So I didn't find anything else that would tell us about who they were. So then let's ask the question, why do we know them? Why are they here in Acts chapter 5? Because they're liars. Okay, so God put them there and because they're liars. Is that what you said? Okay. So it's, it's interesting because you have Acts chapter 4 and the way that Acts chapter 4 ends is that the church is just booming. God is blessing. The fellowship is rich and it's, it is sweet. And it says there um, in verse 34 um, of Acts chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them. Wouldn't that be nice, Corey? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. It was the idea that that there was just this utopia, if you will, just this perfect thing that if I didn't have something, Chad Payton would go and sell something so that I could then have something. That's the kind of relationship that was happening. So that's Acts chapter 4. And then you get to Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. And it's, it's the same scene. The church is just peaceful. Everybody's getting along. It says at the end of verse 12, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And verse 14 says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes, multitudes of both men and women. So they say, you got these two bookends, 
the church is highly favored and greatly blessed, and the church is highly favored and greatly blessed, and yet right in the middle you have verses 1 through 11. So they're there, as Carol said, because God put them there. Shaney said, because they're liars. What else would be a reason why they would be there? Or what else do we know? Why, or why would they be significant in the pages of Scripture? Ideas? I think it's because it was so public. So public? Okay. So public. Is it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, would you say? I wouldn't say blasphemy because they weren't talking against the Holy Spirit. More of lying. rebellion, lying, denial. They were used as like a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Example. They, 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 were, they were used they as an example. Okay. <laughs> what were you going to say, Miss Diane? They were greedy. Their they, heart. They were, their heart was wrong. Greedy. First recipients of church discipline. <laughs> <laughs> First. Okay. So, if you're not familiar with the story, at the end of Acts chapter 4, um, as there was needs in the church, people would sell possessions, people would sell properties, people would sell valuables, and then they would bring the money. And at that time, you had the apostles that were leading and shepherding that early church, that first generation church. And so people would come and they would say, here, here is something that God has blessed me with, but I have been leveraged into a financial um, Situation, money in their hand, whatever it was, they would then give it to the apostles for the apostles then to distribute and use it as the ministry needs were there. So in Acts chapter 4, it talks about, verse 36, it talks about a guy named Barnabas. And it says that he, verse 37, he sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So you get this idea that he sells the field, he takes the money, brings it into the church and says, here, I got this, use it to help people. So when Acts chapter 5 opens up, you have this uh, man, Ananias with his wife Sapphira in verse 1 and they sold a piece of property. So it's kind of like a parallel. You think well that's what Barnabas did. Sold some property. So now you have Ananias and Sapphira. And if you stop there at verse 1, you think, okay, so what do we learn? We learn that they're most likely, we imply that they were probably part of that early church because they knew they knew them, they were known by them. Okay, so we assume that they were part of that early church. And then they had some they were owners of property. Now I didn't live then, so I don't know as far as that make them upper class, middle class, lower class, but they had means, all right? So they had some property, they had some possessions, they had some ownership, and it says in verse 1, they sold a piece of property. So they are following the example they had from Barnabas, except for then you get to verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he, Ananias, kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' Feet. So as, who's the author of Acts? Luke. Luke. Okay, so as Luke is recording this, he is setting up this scenario where if you and I are reading it, we're like, okay, verse 1, they're just like Barnabas. And then verse 2, they sold it, and then they sold it for $100, and they took $50 and put it back in their back pocket, and then brought the other 50 to the, the apostles and said, hey, we sold a field too, here is the money. So what is happening they're not being honest. Like Shaney said, they're liars. Like Denise said, they're lying. They are lying to the church, right? They are presenting as one thing, but inwardly there's something different. Hypocritical. 
critical. Deceit. Deceitful. And it's not even like, you know, they were told that they had to sell their fields and give all of the proceeds. It's like, you know, tithing, you know, like you, uh, you if you were to tithe 50% of your paycheck and then say, I gave you 100%, like, that's just shameful. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> So that's the dynamic. So here in the text, that's that's what's going on. So you get down there to verse 2, and you're like, okay. So they sold it following the actions of Barnabas. They brought the money to Peter and gave it to him following the act, following the following the example of Barnabas. The problem is, is that when Barnabas brought it, he brought all of it. When they're bringing it, they're only bringing a portion of it. But they're trying to look the same as Barnabas. Now, are they the only ones recorded in Scripture that do this? Probably not. I don't think so. Are they the only ones? Yeah. Go back to the sacrifices. Okay. Are they the only ones on a Sunday morning that do this? Nope. I mean, is ha, have you ever... Well, you're not going to be honest. You're not going to tell me if you have. But have you ever been tempted to come in here and say, "Hey, I am healthy spiritually, and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing," when really you know that you're not? You know, we're all tempted. We're all tempted to present present ourselves in something other than we are. There's a danger with that. Well, then you get to verse 3. So then, Peter, and you know, this is kind of one of those supernatural things. Peter just knew. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 5, And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. So you say, well, why, why do we know about Ananias? Why is he in Scripture? Well, he was a member of the church, allegedly. Uh, we assume he was a member of that early church. Had some property, sold part of the property. But then when he came, he presented it, he, he, he sold it, and then he lied. And that's what Peter says, you lied. You lied not to man, but to God. So the problem was, is that he was lying to God. He was telling God he was going to be faithful, he was going to be obedient, he was going to be sacrificial, he was going to do what God had put in his heart to do, and yet he lied to God. And so when he lied to God, then the consequence was what? Verse 5, he fell down and breathed his last. I kind of wonder what that looked like. Scary. I mean, like, so is Peter talking to him and all of a sudden he just faints? Dead? Is it one of those things that all of a sudden his face grows, you know, ash white and all of a sudden he just kind of trembles and all that kind of, he, he just kind of stumbles around and he can't catch his breath and all of a sudden he, he kills over me? Does he fall down and have some seizures? I'm just kind of like, what does that look like? Because it wasn't like it was a natural cause. Is it important though to know why? No, but my morbid curiosity <laughs> is just like I wonder what that would have looked like when it, when Peter's looking at him because I because I just wonder does Peter look at him and say Ananias you have not lied to man but you've lied to God and then I wonder if Peter did something like that and then all of a sudden he fell down or if Peter paused for the dramatic impact of what 
he had to say and then he fell down or if in the midst of his talking he fell down. The point is, is that he died immediately. And we don't have anything in Scripture where he tried to justify himself. We don't have anything in Scripture where he tried to explain himself. We don't have anything in Scripture where he tried to say, no, you got this wrong. Why? Because God knew the condition of his heart. We get to Revelation 19 and we get to the great white throne judgment. When God starts judging his creation, he doesn't come and ask you to make a case. God knows who are his and who aren't his. Matthew chapter 25 in the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus is talking, Jesus says that when that time comes, Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate the lost from the found. Who is going to do the separating? We're not taking a vote. We're not going to have a straw poll. We're not going to caucus in Iowa on a cold, cold night. Jesus is sitting there and Jesus knows lost say, lost say. There's not going to be a time of going, well, wait, hold up a second, hold up a second, back in third grade. No. It's final. It's just. And it's right. Amen. So, whenever Peter's looking at Ananias and says, here's the issue, you knowingly lied to God. And then this is the consequence of you lying to God. You're dead. It says in verse 6, the young men arose, wrapped him up, and carried him out to bury him. Again, Miss Carol, I realize this probably has no, this doesn't matter whatsoever. I just wondered about the young men. Like, were they on were they were they in trouble? Did they do something wrong? I mean, like, if you're a young man sitting there and you're watching this, and all of a sudden Peter says, Go bury him. I don't want to go dig by hand. I mean, I don't know when the last time you were on the work again of a shovel. I would be worried about dying. I'd be worried about whatever he died of, that being catching on me. I would have said, I would be thinking, I better do what he tells me to. Well, that may be it too, but I'm just kind of like, I mean, I just can't imagine you're digging, you're digging a hole to bury a person. That's not just going out and digging a hole looking for work. I mean, this is going to be an undertaking. And all of a sudden, these guys draw the short straw, and now they're out there digging a hole. Yes, sir. Was Peter questioned? Like, hey, this guy just came in to talk to you. Now he's dead. Here his wife shows up, talks to you. Now she's dead. What's going on, Peter? It, 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 it doesn't give us. It, it doesn't tell us. Anthony, and that's one of those things that like, I get here, and I'm like, I want more information. I mean, I, I want more of the story. I mean, I feel like I'm not getting the, the entire breadth of it. We're assuming they're in the room, but if you read her account, it says the feet of the men at the door. See the feet of them. So that makes me think the door is closed and she can see their feet under the door. So were they actually in there? The feet of who? So when she comes in and he says, look at the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door and they will carry you out. Which makes me think she can't see them. Except that, you know, like under the doorway. Maybe I've always, I guess I always just read it as she's in the room and they're like, hey, see, it hasn't been that long since they buried him. They're almost back from burying him and now they'll get to bury you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way that I, but maybe, maybe. Um, but he just dies. And you think to yourself, that's the, that is the consequence of lying to God. And then you think to yourselves, have I ever lied to have I ever lied to God? Yes, I have. 
What do you mean, Spence? You've lied to God? Yeah, I've, said, I've told God before, God, I won't do it again. But have you done it, like, say, on a Sunday morning while you're in the pulpit? Lied to God? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, that's kind of like what they did whenever they stepped up to Peter doing that. Well, I just... Sometimes we look at this and we're like, yeah, that's what you get. And then we forget that we've been there as well. So why does God do that to them right here? It doesn't do that to me right then? I, I don't know. But I just don't want any of us to walk out of here going, hey, there's nothing in this story that relates to us. Right? Well, so, I see that we should give God our all and not just sure. claiming that we're giving Him our all and we're not. Sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. All right. So, so chapter 5. Um, comes in, Peter calls him out. We don't have anything in Scripture that says that Peter had gotten a message beforehand. He had saw a vision beforehand. It's just like Peter spiritually discerned that this is what's going on. So, verse 6, the young man picked him up, take him out. Three hours later, alright, in comes Sapphira. She probably comes bebopping in there. She's probably pretty excited because she's like, hey, we just made a large donation to the church. They're probably going to name that wing of the church, the Ananias and Sapphira, you know, education building or whatever. She comes in and it says there in verse 8, Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so and so much. And what she do? She said, well, yeah, we, that's how much we sold it for. And then Peter said, you have agreed together um, to test the spirit of the Lord. And behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband at the door, they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Again, can you imagine the young men? Just getting back. <laughs> they just got back. They're probably looking for some lemonade, maybe a sandwich or something. And they walk in, they're just like... Come on, come on, come on, come on, girl. And so they load her up and they take her right back out. And it says they found they found her and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Could it be too partly that God's telling us he knows what's going on? And it don't do you good to lie because he knows. So Ms. Carroll said, could it be that God is just telling us that He knows, He knows what's going on, doesn't do us any good to lie? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned about our sincerity before God. I think there are things to be thinking about when it comes to our honesty before God. I mean, the question is not my honesty in your eyes. The question is, my honesty to God? God knows my heart. God knows the condition of my spirit. God knows whether I'm being honest or I'm not. God knows if I'm being truthful or not. God knows the attitude. He knows the posture. He knows the intention of my heart. I should not be worried about your opinion as much as I should be worried about God's opinion. And yet, so many times we flip that we start becoming more concerned about the opinion of man instead of the opinion of God. So we have this whole batch of what, what is it? What is this generation? What is your generation called, Shelby? Z. Question mark? Confused? Z? Okay, so Generation Z. So you got this whole Generation Z out there, and they're not the first generation to go through this, but right now they're in the middle of trying to figure out who it is that they're supposed to be pleasing. And 
Like, wasn't apparent whenever Mr. Ronald was going through this stage of life. He didn't have all these voices and all of these influences saying, pay attention to me, listen to me, do what I say, do what I... Follow after me. And yet this whole generation right now is being bombarded with this idea of listen to me, pay attention to me, follow after me. I mean, you have people that are making videos on YouTube that are making millions of dollars a month because people are watching their videos and because of the ad revenue. And so when those people on those social media platforms are receiving money, so then what do they start doing? They start producing content that people want to see. And it's this cycle, and it is this cycle that feeds on itself. People are producing content that people want to see. People are watching content they want to watch, and the cycle goes over. And what is missing in the cycle, it is the pleasure, the glory, the authority, the Word of God. So all it is is man pleasing man, man being pleased by man or woman. I'm not trying to be sexist. Humanity pleasing humanity. And this cycle goes around and around and around. And now all of a sudden we're content with pleasing people and being pleased by people. We're getting information overload. It's out of balance. Yes. It's darkness. Some of you are old enough to remember the washing machine. And the washing machine would sometimes get out of balance. And you would hear And you'd go in the laundry room and your towels or your comforter or whatever, your tennis shoes or whatever, they got off on one side. And as it's sitting there spinning because it's out of balance, it's going And you think, I've got to correct it. It is going to have a come apart. Well, that's where we're at right now in our society. And we've got to be aware, we've got to be aware of this. We've got to be knowledgeable to know that we can get sucked into this idea of trying to please fellow man and then wanting fellow man to find their pleasure in us. And that's a cycle. So, so we're, God is a lot more important than men. I think so. That's what the Bible says. Yes, ma'am. Okay. I'm just simplifying it in my little... I understand. So, in Acts chapter 5, what we're seeing is, Ananias and Sapphira, they're more worried about the pleasure of man, the opinion of man, the accolades of man, the recognition of man, than they were the opinion of God. And, when we see that, biblically, it always ends poorly. You go back to Nebuchadnezzar. And remember, he's in the palace, and he's getting the accolades, and he starts to think, look what I did, look what I've done, and what happens? He falls down. The worms eat him and he breathes his last. I think that's just a very interesting order of the words. The worms ate him and then he breathed his last. Like, I just wonder, was he being ate alive by the worms? I I wasn't there. I don't know. But every time you see man starts to become haughty and arrogant and become more concerned about the opinion and the pleasure and the glory of man instead of the opinion and the pleasure and glory of God... There's always something that comes awry. So, talked about who they were. Talked about why do we know them. Any other things that you might think about that um, pertain to the story about why we would know them here in the text? Then what lessons? I already, I already hit some of them. Any other lessons that stick out to you from the Ananias' fire? Yes, sir. They lack the fear of the Lord. They lack the fear of the Lord. And that's what came from their death. 
with the rest of the story. That's that's to me what the gist of this is. They like to fear the Lord, and when God smote them, smote them, then that then instilled fear in the rest of the people. Then they understood. Then they understood yeah, and got they their were mind also right. Susceptible to the same thing. Yes, as we all are. Yes. And he was gracious enough to. Use only two of them as an example. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yes, ma'am. So I remember growing up in Southern Baptist Church, and like the a lot of uh, the power, like one of the main pastors that I grew up with got a lot of um, a, a bad rap because he was all about fire and brimstone, right? Like you know, fear God, fear God, and all that. And so as I grew up, I noticed that we like the the feeling of the church has changed to more of soft and rainbows and sunshine and God is going to love you through all these things which is true but I think like there's something that we forget is that God is also a jealous and he is a vengeful or I I don't know right he's holy he's just yeah he's just and and this kind of like is he going to just have somebody send us to knock us down dead on the floor maybe not but could he? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we forget that because we've fed into this happiness and sunshine. And would he be just That's in doing that? Yes. In mine, it kind of has a little excerpt saying, uh, 1 Peter 4.17 says, The time has come for judgment and must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who never obey God's mm. Yeah. So. That's right. That's good news. Yeah. So mine refers back to to the op- gives me an opposite, and it goes back to Boaz, back where we were last week. Which uh-huh. is really cool for me. Yeah. You know, and how he's the opposite. How he shows us the example of what God wants and to keep giving. You know? Right. So. Yeah. So I agree. The, the holiness of God is on display here. And where God says, my holiness is not up for compromise. And my holiness is not up for debate. And my holiness is not up for popular opinion. My holiness will not be violated. And Ananias and Sapphira infringed upon the holiness of God and the wrath of God was swift and the wrath of God was just and the wrath of God was quick. You know, sometimes you and I start to think, well, God, or we hear people say, you know, God is mean. God isn't mean. Well, God if, sent Jesus. God sent Jesus, but if, 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 if God did not love me, He would have smote me years ago. He was perfectly justified years and years ago of wiping me out and taking me out of the picture altogether. And yet, because God is good and because God is loving and because God is a forgiving God and because God has a plan and a purpose for all of our lives, God says, you know what? Spence is a knucklehead, but my son Jesus has died for his sins. And so therefore, I will give him grace and give him mercy. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't mean that then God's mad at me or God's mean to me if He gives me children that are just like their mother. It doesn't mean that God that God is that God's angry at me. It doesn't mean that. <laughs> but sometimes we start to think that, don't we? That God's not giving me what I deserve, and God's not giving me 
what I, I should get. And you would think that Ananias and Sapphira, they may say, I gave you a portion of it, God. I didn't have to give you any of it. And they're missing the point. They were, they were compromising and they were taking advantage and they're abusing the holiness of God. What other lessons? The worldly possession of the money, they didn't even get to enjoy. They did not. They get, you, get, you don't get to take it with you. Right. Materialistic. Materialistic, yeah. Yeah. What other lessons might stick at? Yes, sir. I, I think we're in danger of having lost our fear of God. Yeah. And we've become flippant when we approach it. Yes. And I think we all ought to maybe think about that even before we pray. Leonard Ravenhill years ago wrote a book um, entitled Sodom Had No Bible. In the book, um, he made the statement later on, Billy Graham used it quite a bit, but that if God does not bring judgment upon the church and even upon the United States for our sins, he will have to apologize to Sodom for his judgment for their sins. And the point that Leonard Ravenhill was making is that so many, I mean, we, we look at it and in our arrogance or in our self-sufficiency, uh, we forget that God did it to Sodom. So why would God not do it to us? Are our sins that much better? No. I mean, like you said, the fear of God is lacking. The other thing I was thinking about was the last time we had the Lord's Supper. And the correct way that you presented it and pleaded for us to not take it in an unworthy manner. I, I think sometimes, I, I know I've been guilty of just going through the motion and not thinking about that. Right. Yeah. But like you say, we, we don't fear God like, like our ancestors did. You know, you think down at the Lutheran church there at Lutheran Cemetery, there's a big church to the north of it. And like in 1920, they had a 400 membership. And you figure the 1920s, still 160s. So the people that came, most of them was in a horse and a wagon. And Sunday, it was cold. Well, they was in a horse and wagon, and they still come because they fear God. Yeah. And that's where we have lost it. And, and we... Like you said, it, we've tried to sugarcoat it to get people in. And as long as it says the Word of God, I mean, that's why we're still throwing boots so the toes don't hurt so bad. But, you know, it's it's the truth, you know, and, and we have. We, we, we've slacked off, you know. And to be able to stand out on a corner and tell people about God, you don't see it. I mean, it's just, you know, people are scared because... A non-Christian or them, they are smart in the Bible. We don't, we don't like to be challenged, you know. Right. And I think that's where we're lacking in it. Yep. Yeah. Yes, sir. I think on that, one thing that um, I think needs to be said is, yes, we need to fear God, but we also need to remember that God shows us mercy. Correct. Of course. Oh, yes. 
And that's one big thing that. That's right. That's right. And that our fear of God should elevate our gratitude for the mercy of God. And then as our mercy of God, our gratitude for the mercy of God increases, it is fueled by that fear of God. And that is the cycle we should be pursuing of just in a greater awe because God would grant me mercy. And the more I know about God, the more I'm in gratitude because of the mercy. But then the more mercy I have, the more fear. I mean, it just it feeds on itself. And for infinity. For infinity. And then you and I can just sit back and we can just have a just a, a Pentecostal worship moment by ourselves when we just start thinking about this is what God has done for me. I, not worry about the rest of y'all, as important as you are. I mean, just me and, and what God has done for me and the blessings of God for me and how flippant I have been with the holiness of God in the past and how much God gave me grace and mercy in the past. You know, because you get right here, they didn't come in and stand at the street corner and say, look what I did. Everything, they just came in here and gave the money and they were lying. They, they lied to God and God said, time to make an example. Is there mercy in that? I, well, so well, I think there's mercy in the fact that it's an example for other people not to do it. I mean, so the fact that God takes out Corey is giving mercy to then Hurley because Hurley's like, I'm not going to do what Corey did. <laughs> I mean, that that is a form of mercy where God is showing, right? Uh, now, if Hurley looked at it and goes, stinks to be Corey, he didn't get the point. I mean, he didn't, he didn't get the picture. Um, and then at the same time, for Corey, I mean, yes, he gets smote. We have nothing in Scripture to say that they lost their salvation. We have nothing in Scripture to say that they did that if they were saved, they didn't go to heaven. I mean, there's nothing that says that. It could have been that they were born again believers they got out of line, Jesus took them smote them, still went to heaven, we have no reason to say that they didn't so is that an act of mercy that God spared them of the embarrassment and of the continued backsliddenness possibly again, it doesn't say yes or no so I don't want any of you all thinking well that's what Spence said Um, Just there's I just wonder that sometimes, we always look at situations like this and we say kind of like as despair and I'm like but is there mercy in that? Right. Just like you said whether it's embarrassment whether it's repetitive behavior that's going to happen and they're just going to keep you know tracking along that I wonder well, I, I think that takes Mars. away from the fear. Sure. But even Hebrews 6 says you know God disciplines those that he loves. And the, the evidence of God's discipline upon your life is a mark of the love of God in your life. And the only people that God disciplines are His children. So when you're under that discipline of God, not only is it, it, is a, it is an example and demonstration of the love of God for you, but it's also a mark that you belong to God. So that discipline is good. Now, I have been trying to convince children for a lot of years of, of that principle. Um, I, and I don't know, I'm sure Chad's got to figure it out with Karina and Shelby and Devin, but, but I, I have not figured out where they look at me and go, well, thank you, Father. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't figured that out. But I think, I think, I think if they understood 
my children understood my heart behind it, I think that they would say, hey, we understand he's not doing this to be mean. He's doing this because he thinks it's what's best for us. The problem is, is that my children don't do it because their own father doesn't do that with his heavenly father. Does that make sense? I mean, I look at God and I don't have appreciation of God for the correction and the chastisement that come upon my life, but I expect my children to appreciate the correction and chastisement that I put on their life. Um, so, there's, so there's some parallels that are there in our lives. What other lessons? Any other lessons that you think of? Yes, sir. And that's the other Ananias and further on in the book. They were lying about dying? They, they could have been lying about dying and then he gets promoted to high priest, I guess. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. I think there was also mercy in that quick death, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't get eaten by worms and then be long and drawn out. <laughs> well, if they were Christians, they were with him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yes, sir. I think we'd have a revival if you warned us not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And we did it, and half of us fell out like I'm not That kick off a revival? I think it would kick off an investigation. <laughs> Exodus. I, I think, you know, because, and, and that's kind of what Shaney was talking about. Some of the some of the, the lack of stomach to be able to handle the fire and brimstone preaching is because there's so many other churches out there that hey, I come in here, he says something I don't like, or he challenges some of my pet sins. I'll just go next door to someone that does not. It is not as controversial towards my, you know, my pleasures. And so you just go next door and that is where we've fallen into this having to please the masses. And so we have to lower the standards down continually to lower common denominators to try to please the masses because we're not willing to say, thus saith the Lord. So I think in a situation like that, I think the majority of people are like, hey, we're going to go to Trinity. You know, they don't have the same issue of Trinity, and they miss the point. They miss that God was doing something to arrest their attention. My father-in-law so. tells you to do it all the time. <laughs> yes, her, her father-in-law is always like, oh, you need more fire and brimstone. And I'm like, I, <laughs> Virgil, I, I don't, I mean, I, I talk about sin, and I talk about hell, and I talk about disobedience. I mean, I, I don't spit and and... Scream, but I mean, I, at the same time, I don't, you know, everything has its place. So, no babies have started crying in any of their messages that I've been here yet. But some of that I don't want to try to manufacture, you know, manufacture a spiritual presence. You know, some of that it's like just when God's ready, God's ready. So, yeah. All right. Well, glad that you were here. Tonight, Lord willing, uh, next Wednesday will be on Aquila and Priscilla out of Acts chapter 18. <coughs> so, well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you all were here this evening. Thank you all so much for being here. Charles, would you close us in a word of prayer and we'll go home. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wilson. 
We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwelsh.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.